Well, welcome. Revelation. My name's Jesse. Usually you see me up here with some sort of guitar, but somehow I talked him into letting me talk to you guys, suckers. I talked him right into it. Yeah. Yeah. And since I'm a worship leader, I really don't mind if you yell out things while we're going. Just try not to say heretic or, or blasphemy or something like that. It's cool. I feed off of that. That's fine. You know, we're going to start this off by getting with the idea that when I was in fourth grade, I want to show you a family picture of myself in fourth grade. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's my family right there. If, if you were never a part of a church that did family photo books, uh, you, you, this was me. My dad's stash is epic. That mustache is powerful. But let's zone in on this good-looking fella in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. That hunk right there, man. I didn't have a girlfriend in fourth grade. What happens is, is you go to the eye doctor and they dilate your eyes and they tell you that you're blind and then you walk out of there and they go, now pick out some frames. Here, here you go, pick out some frames. And you're like, I think these are great. I got home, had them on and I could finally see and I realized they're not black frames. Those are silver, big silver frames. And I was kind of like, gosh, you're a dork, Jesse. But I had to wear them because my parents were broke and there was no way they were getting me a second pair. That was not happening. And I really needed them. But in junior high, it was too cool for glasses. I moved into the contacts phase. And if you know anything about uh, junior high boys, you realize that they're pretty lazy about hygiene things until they meet girls. And, um, and the reality was is I stopped wearing my contacts because I was being lazy, not because I didn't care. I just was being lazy. And then eventually I started to not do so well in math because I couldn't see the whiteboard very well. I could do really well with reading and writing because it's right in front of me. I could auditorily learn very well, but I could not see the whiteboard for equations. And so by the end of my junior high time, I started to wear contacts again and I could finally see. I could actually see, and I started doing better in school, and so then I got into high school and did uh, well through all that. But what happened is I needed a new set of lenses, and all the time, you go to the eye doctor, and every time they say, you're a little bit more blind than you were before. (laughs) We're constantly needing new lenses, and I want us to look at Revelation with a new sense of lenses, and if you do, I think it's really going to be quite beautiful for you and for me. Uh, The Revelation starts with with this uh, verse right here, Revelation 1-3. Said, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Blessed are you to hear it, blessed are you to read it. I think it's going to be a blessing today, because the reality is there is a problem with our understanding of Revelation. For most of us, we've never read Revelation because it's too scary or too weird. Or the rest of us have heard what other people have said about Revelation and thought, ah, that sounds weird too. And so we stick away from it because nobody likes to feel dumb. Nobody likes to feel like they don't know. And so we stick away from it. And there's a problem and a tension there. And then when we do read it, we read it with a certain set of lenses that may not be correct lenses. What I believe the book of Revelation points out is that every honest encounter with God will change your life. So I don't want you to miss out on a revelation from him. Every honest encounter with God will change your life, so don't miss out on a revelation from him. Not reading Revelation because you don't understand it. I think you can do better. I think we can all do better. And when you do, you're going to find a new thing out about God. And I think it's going to be powerful for your life. So to recap what Pastor Larry talked about last week. If you were here last week, he did a fantastic job. He talked about two things that are very important. You can watch it on the Northgate app um, or on our Vimeo page. Uh, you can see that message if you missed it. But he introduced the idea that this book is not literal. It's not literal. 
And when we come to this book and we say, it's A and B and C and D and E, and of course it's this way. It's not literal. It's never been written that way. It's not written in that genre either. So it's not a literal book. That's our first understanding. The second understanding of this book of Revelation is that it was written for a certain people at a certain time for a certain purpose. The book of Revelation was written at a certain time for a certain people for a certain purpose. You have to know that when you're getting into reading Revelation. Now we're going to be going just a very small amount through Revelation chapters 4 through 19. I told children's workers that hang out for another hour or so, it's cool. We're going through 4 through 19, so we're not going to be able to get into the finite details. My hope is that you read the book of Revelation, and that as you read the book of Revelation, you have a new set of lenses to read it with. You have a new set of lenses to read it with. Now, if you have never read the Bible, and you're just coming in here saying, oh, he says to read Revelation, so I'll start there. Please don't. (laughs) Please don't start there. Start in the Gospels. At the very beginning of the New Testament, there's four books about a man named Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's really important to understand the book of Revelation that you understand who Jesus is. Because the book of Revelation is all about Jesus and God. But if your context is very low to who Jesus is, start in the Gospels. Even if you've barely read the Bible, start in the Gospels. Don't look, don't open it up and go, I I guess I'll start in the beginning, Genesis 1. It's not a great idea. Find out who Jesus is first, and the rest of the story makes complete sense. Now, in chapters 4 through 19, you're going to hear things about, like, (laughs) multi-headed beasts with thorns and eagles with eyes under its wings. You're going to hear things about lampstands, and you're going to see catastrophic events, and there's beasts coming out from everywhere in these chapters. And literally, when you read it it, 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 with a a poor set of lenses, it can scare the snot out of you. It, was, it is very uh, intimidating. And then you're reading it and all of these things happen. Judgment upon judgment. And then, and then this white rider comes down and then Satan gets punched in the face. But he's not dead yet for a thousand years. And then he comes back. There's so much that happens here. And I know that you're going to experience some of this as you read it. But I want to let you know that the context is there are a lot of stories of judgment that are going to be coming up. So... I hope you'll read the book of Revelation, but this is really important. I'm going to go through some very finite details, very fast. I know you're not going to want to mess, miss, uh, miss these ones, so you have your sermon notes out. You have your Northgate app out. Get ready. I'm going to give you some things that are not going to be on the TV. They're going to be for you to write down. The natural response to God is to worship him. The first thing that Revelation talks, tells us about it is the natural response to God is to worship him. All throughout Revelation, this is your context. This is your starting point in so many ways. The natural response to God is to worship him. And you see it all the time. People get in the presence of God in the the book of Revelation, and all of a sudden, what do they do? They fall down at their feet and they worship him. Time and time and time again. The writer is establishing the idea that the natural response to God is to worship him. You see angels, it says... Day and night, they never stop saying, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If you think modern worship music is too repetitive, just wait till you get to heaven. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this guy's saying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And this guy over here is going, holy, holy, forever. Forever and ever. It inspires worship. That's what God's presence does. Also, Something to note that it talks to us about is that worship isn't just about music or praise of your words. It's also about loyalty. It's 
also about loyalty. You're going to see that. And if you have a Bible with you, you can open it up. The Northgate app has a free Bible. If you need a Bible, we have one for you. It's in the back. That's for you. But I'm going to read to you about these people. You're going to see over and over in this, in this area. And they're the people in white robes. In chapter 7, verse 13, is where we're going to go. Chapter 7 of Revelation, verse 13. I know you'll catch there, and then you'll have a mark there. And we're going to come back to this scripture a few times, so just hold on to this one. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they, and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Who, did Jesus do this to them? No, they have washed. A loyalty is a big deal. When you find out that God sent his one and only son for your life, so that you might spend eternity with him, that inspires, inspires loyalty just as much as it inspires worship. They have washed their robes in Jesus. Okay? God's very presence inspires worship. Another key to understanding this section of Revelation and all of Revelation is that numbers and symbols mean something, but they don't mean everything. I am sure for most of you, you have heard many explanations about what different creatures mean and why there was three of them or why it has so many different heads or why there's so many eyes under the wings. You've heard different things about the numbers. And the numbers do mean something, but they can't mean everything throughout history. So an important thing to think about is a few of the numbers we do know really represent something. The number three, you're going to see that a lot in this area of Revelation. The Jewish people believe that the number one was simple. If you're by yourself, it's very simple. How do you care for yourself? By yourself. That two, they understood very important knowledge about marriage is that two is very complex. If you are married, you know, it's just a little bit different. You have your first kid and life changes. But then you have your second kid, and you're like, that was so simple. And then you have your third kid, so I've heard, and you go, now this is crazy. <laughs> now, the Jewish people believed it was harmony. That a third, the, the number three meant harmony. So when you see the number three, or you see three things happening, you're going to recognize it as harmony. Harmony. Seven. The number seven. God created the world in seven days. You're going to see that number seven. And when you think of the number seven, I want you to think of creation and blessing. And when you see that number seven, you're going to realize that continually it's, com- it's um, creation and blessing. Another number you're going to see over and over again is 12. 12 is an important number for the Jewish people. It's really important to Jesus. Jesus had how many disciples? 12. He could have had 50, but he only had 12. The nation of Israel had how many tribes? 12. For those of you who know, 12. 12 is a very important number. 12 represents totality, wholeness, and the completion of God's purpose. Another number that's been misunderstood. 144,000. You ever heard about this one? There were 144,000 people. I want to kind of talk about that for just a second. Do the math real quick. That's 12 times 12,000. And what do we know about the number 12? It represents totality, wholeness. I want to read from you from uh, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. It says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 for all the tribes of Israel. Then I heard. So John heard. The writer heard. He didn't see. Not yet. He heard. 
The number of those that were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Then if you go down into verse 9 after it lists out the tribes, it says this. After this, I looked. Stop right there. He heard. Now he's looking. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count. Is 144,000 literal? No. 144,000 represents 12, totality, wholeness, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. If you want to understand who's God's chosen, he wants everybody with him. That's what 144,000. And there's one more number that I'm sure you're wondering if I'm going to get to. And it's a three-digit number I'm sure you've heard multiple places and times. It's the number? 666. But I'm not going to talk about that. We're moving on. Okay, I'm going to give you a quick, quick synopsis of what the 666 might mean. It's been debated by a lot of different scholars, but I think uh, the most common solution and understanding of this is that the number 666 is the mark of the beast. And the mark of the beast in this becomes a very important thing because you can't purchase goods without the mark of the beast. You can't, uh, you're identifying yourself with the ways of the beast. You can't do much in commerce or do much else. We know what the writer John meant in this, what the beast was. Quite often the beast is associated with Rome because this was written for a people at a time on purpose. Okay. A lot of people have tried to make the beast something else. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But the beast was Rome. For a people, for a purpose, at a time. Okay? So the number 666, the word here is actually karagma. It's used, um, the word here for mark was a technical term for the imperial stamp on commercial documents and for the imprint of the emperor's head on coins. You could not buy things in Rome without a Roman coin. And guess whose head was on the Roman coin? The emperor. You could not at all. You couldn't be a part of anything there that would, if you were marking yourselves with that. Those who have the mark belong to the beast and do his bidding. I'm going to turn really quickly into 13, chapter 13 here. I'm going to look at verse 18. It says, This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Right here, that's where they find this, 666. It could also be translated this, understanding. Let the person who has insight calculate that the number for the beast, for it is humanity's number. That number is 666. You see, the mark of the beast doesn't have to be a physical mark on your forehead. He's referencing an Old Testament passage. It doesn't have to be a tattoo on your arm or anything else. It is simply marking yourself for something other than God. Because remember those white robes? We're going to put that scripture up again. They washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. They chose to mark themselves to Jesus. They chose to self-identify that way. And if you self-identify with Jesus, there's no way you can walk into this and mark yourself with things of the world, things of Rome, things of power and greed and lust. It just doesn't work out. The mark of the beast has nothing to do. You can keep your cell phones, and if they get a wearable, you know, like computer, awesome, you'll be okay. The mark of the beast doesn't have to do with that. It has everything to do with setting yourself either for what Jesus isn't or what Jesus is. They have washed their robes. 666. Last two points have been important, but this is very, very important to reading the rest of this 
section. And it's the book of Revelation is not a linear story. It's not a linear story. See, the story starts in chapter 4 when John is in the throne room of God. And I love this vision. Because John continues to say, then I saw. Then I saw. Next, I saw. He's in the throne room of God. That is the context of our story. There was a movie called Crash put out quite a few years ago. And it starts at the scene of a crash. And all these characters get developed throughout the whole movie, but they're all coming in from different angles. And at the very end of the movie, it ends with the crash. And you learn so much more about the story as it goes along. But the reality is, the story is all about the crash. And book of Revelation is all about the throne room of God. How do I know this? It starts with the seven seals being opened after he's in the throne room of God. And every time the seven seals are opened, seven stands for creation. Every time the seven seals are opened, something amazing happens. And then after that, there are three sets of judgments. Three means harmony. And at the end of each one of those judgment series, there are... There is lightning, an earthquake, and thunder. Lightning, an earthquake, and thunder. Revelation 4, 5, where does that else come up when he's in the throne room? From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. These stories are not linear. It's more lyrical. It's more lyrical. One of the best pop song hooks of all time. I want to hold your hand. You know it? Sing it with me. I want to hold your hand. Now, can you sing the verse to that song? There is a verse, but here's the deal. It's just a part of the song. It's not not a part of the song. There's just certain things in the song that you remember, but it's all telling one thing. You're all at the end. You're at the starting point. The starting point is the crash. That is God's throne room, and that's the context of the rest of Revelation. Rest of Revelation. John continually says, Then I saw, next I saw, next this happened, and then this happened. We're going to land the plane here in a minute. Why is that important? Why is it important that you don't read it in a linear way? Why is it important you understand some of the numbers? Why is that important? It's truly important because if reading Revelation inspires fear instead of hope, you need a new set of lenses. With you reading the book of Revelation, which I hope you will do, after the Gospels, if it inspires fear instead of hope, you got to shift your focus a little bit because that's not its intention at all. If I were to tell you tomorrow you're going to die by eating a salad at a restaurant, you would immediately give up vegetables. <laughs> if I were to tell you you were going to die going for a jog in four days, you would not leave the house on that fourth day. Is that right? Revelation isn't a roadmap for the rest of what's coming. Revelation is a story about right now. Will you identify with God or will you identify with, 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 a, with things of this world or will you identify with Jesus? It's not a roadmap for the end. It's not linear. It was never intended to be that way. When we read the book of uh, uh, Romans, right? That book was written to a people at a time for a purpose. And we study that. Say, why did he write this book? Who wrote this book? What was going on in Rome around this time? You study all these things and you find out a lot of good information so that what Paul says is interesting and maybe more foundational. But then we do that for all these books and we get to Revelation. We're like, nah, (laughs) 
Biblical scholarship's the joke. I want to see how it ends. We do that all the time. I did it for a very long time. It's not because you're ignorant. It's because you just need a new set of glasses. This story is about God for all time. The story of the first recorded group to predict the end of the world was about 120 years after the book of Revelation was written. They predicted that they knew the end of the world based on the book of Revelation. So if you think predicting the end is a new thing, it's been happening for a long time. So they got everybody together and guess what happened? Nothing happened. Then later on, much later on, Early 1890s, a context we might understand a little bit better. In the early 1890s, there was a group of people who believed that the 144,000 was a literal number and there was going to be people who were never going to die. And that these people would live for all time with Jesus and they would never die. And that that was going to come in 1914. But a big thing happened in the world in 1914. Anybody know? World War I. So there was a lot of excitement about this. Oh man, Jesus is coming. And in 1916, he died. He didn't get to be one of the 144,000 that he said he was because it didn't happen. And then that group later reformed and became Jehovah's Witnesses as we know them today. In 1927, there was a group of Davidians that believed that they understood when the end of time was going to be and it was going to take place at Mount Carmel in what was then Palestine. And at Mount Carmel... Outside of Waco, Texas, they built their own, their own temple. And they went there to worship to wait for the end of the world was going to be coming. But guess what happened before the end of the world came or before it was time? He died. So then his wife had a few more prophecies and they moved 900 families from Canada and the U.S. to Palestine to wait for the end of the world that is coming. And guess what happened? It didn't happen. So then what happens? They splinter, they split up, and a group of them become the Branch Davidians that go back to Waco, Texas. And soon enough, David Koresh comes into the picture down the line. And that group read the book of Revelation, and David Koresh thought he was Jesus. And they read the book of Revelation as if the government was the beast, and they were the 144,000 chosen. And they had to defend, and people died. Men, women, and children. Reading this book in, with incorrect lenses can have very serious effects. So I want you to, to know that. In 1970, Hal Lindsey became very famous in the area that he knew how these things were going to happen too. And then they wrote this Left Behind series based on that. You guys like the Left Behind series? You know, for, for a novel like Tom Clancy and other ones, it's good. But for theology, it's just horrible. Because it's reading this book literally. It's reading it in a way it was never intentioned to be. This past election... I had a few people walk up to me and, and not, not figuratively, literally say to me, Pastor Jesse, you need to get up on that stage. You need to preach. Hillary Clinton cannot be our president. She's the Antichrist. I know this. There's A, B, and C. This is why it's happening. And some of you chuckle. That's probably because you're liber- conservatives. <laughs> and I had some really liberal friends walk up to me and say, well, the end is here. <laughs> Donald Trump is the Antichrist. And I knew that was going to be. He's got Steve Bannon, that's a secondary beast, telling everybody what to do. The end is near. And I said, okay. Three things to note about people who predict the end of the world based on the book of Revelation. One is they always do it, that it happens in their time. 
It never happens in their grand... Imagine that. I'm going to die, but my grandkids are going to have a great time with Jesus. Never happens. I'm not going to die. You're not going to die. Come with us. We're not going to die. We're going to be saved by God. Second thing that always happens is there are creatures and elements in Revelation that are always relatable to today. So Martin Luther, who in the 1500s wrote his 99 thesis, and he stamped it on the, the, the Catholic church wall and said, you guys are corrupt, I'm separating from you, and what we know today as Lutherans came from Martin Luther. Well, the Pope disliked that very much. And Martin Luther disliked the Pope very much because he thought he was correct. So Martin Luther thought the Pope was the beast. He was convinced. And the Pope was convinced that Martin Luther was the beast. Why can it be related all the way through? It can be related all the way through very easily. It's a story of humanity. That some people choose Jesus, some people choose God, and other people choose the way of the world, lust and greed and power. That's a story that's been played out for all eternity. So you wonder why people can relate it to today? It's pretty easy. It's the same story over and over and over again. My prayer is that you read this book with new lenses. You study it and understand it. Why does all this study matter? I told you, an experience with God changes people. An honest encounter with God changes people. It's changed me. I've had an honest encounter with God, and it has changed me because God looked at me, and he could not ignore my sin. A perfect God could not ignore my sin, but he chose to do something about it. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, down. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice to atone for all my junk, for all your junk, and the junk of history. So much. But nothing in the world is free. Have you ever heard the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch? Everything costs, doesn't it? Everything costs. So the payment for this was not anything short of Jesus' life. It was Jesus' life that needed to be taken in. He did that for you and he did it for me and I've experienced the joy of that forgiveness and in Revelation we see what happens when people truly encounter God. Moses went up to the mountain and he got close to God and he got so close that when he came down he had to wear a cloth over his face. It was too bright. He was changed by an encounter with God. The angels are standing in heaven saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty because they have had an encounter with God. It changes people. It's changed me. And for hundreds of people here, I know it's changed them. Paul, who was then Saul, is on the road to Damascus. He's one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament. He's on the road to kill Christians, and God gets in his midst and says, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He changes his name to Paul and writes most of the New Testament. Because when people encounter God, they are changed forever. And when you and I wash ourselves in the blood of the Lamb and we identify with Jesus, it changes you. It changes me. Same thing has happened to hundreds of people in this room. I know it. Hundreds of people in this room. But I got to wonder today if your experience has changed you yet. Do you know about Jesus? Do you understand what it's like to encounter your creator? Do you know what that means? Have you ever felt the presence of God? Has it shifted your focus in life? Maybe your eternity? 
God made it very simple. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, in this world. Revelation says he was the lamb. He was the final sacrifice. John 3.16, you see it on billboards everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have... Oh, wow. You have had an encounter with God. A powerful one. But some of us, myself included throughout this process, has needed a fresh vision from God. A fresh vision from God. So we're going to take a moment, if you would, just bow your heads for a second. And this isn't, uh, close your eyes. This isn't to manipulate. This isn't to manipulate. This is just to give you a moment where you can focus, kind of get the junk out a little bit. Maybe your relationship with God has become a little stale. Maybe you're sitting here today saying, I need to experience God in a whole new way. I know Jesus, and I've asked him to be my Savior, but I need to begin to read the Bible and see what it has to say to my heart. I need to spend time listening and shifting my focus to God. If that's you today, would you do something brave for me? In a few seconds, I'm going to ask you to do something to signify that this is your experience right now. So if this is you, and you need a fresh revelation from God today, would you be so brave as to raise your hand in the air and look up at me, and I want to just acknowledge that you're making that decision to refresh today. All across the room? Yeah, yeah. Yes, if that's you, be brave. Raise your hand high, yeah. Yeah, yes, 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 my goodness. All around the room, you are not alone. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to pray for you for a moment. God, I pray that you would bring a fresh revelation, a newness to your word, and a newness to your love, to your knowledge. God, that those of us who need a little dusting off, that we refocus ourselves and re-identify ourselves with you and not of the things of this world. We've already made that decision to follow you, God, and we faltered in some areas, and so we're just saying today is a day where we recommit to you that. We thank you. I also know that there's some people in the room who have never taken that first step. You've never made that first time decision. Relationship with him shifts eternity, not just here and now, it shifts forever, but it starts right now. I know there are some people in the room today that have never taken that opportunity to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And Romans 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you've got to mark yourself for Jesus. You've got to mark yourself for God. This is the story of Revelation. Jesus is our Savior. And maybe you you never said these words from your heart, so I'm going to ask you a very important question today. So listen carefully. If that's you, And you have never declared with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And for the first time, you're ready to believe that God raised him from the dead. And this is your first time doing so. Then in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to do the same brave thing. If you want to accept Jesus for the first time today, simply be brave and raise your hand. And look up at me. Raise it high. If you're making that decision today for the very first time, is there someone in the room? Yeah, I see you. I see you. 
pray along with me. God, I need you. Jesus, I ask you as my Lord and Savior, and I believe not only did you rise from the dead, you will come again. And in the meantime, I will trust and I will follow. We love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand for a minute? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California. You